This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Spiritual and Mindfulness, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Meg, today's host of the channel, and today we are talking to Dr. Emily Jane O'Dell about the book, The Gift of Rumi, Experiencing the Wisdom of the Sufi Master. Dr. O'Dell, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, we're so glad to have you. Um, Okay, Dr. Odell, I wonder if you could begin our interview today just by telling us about um, who you are and maybe a little bit about what the topic you're talking about and that got you so interested in. Uh, Thank you so much. So I am a um, writer, adventurer, professor, um, and um, a curious soul, I guess you could say. Um, so I am in my in my professorial role, um, currently teaching in Myanmar, um, which I'm mm-hmm. enjoying so much. Um, and I've taught stateside at um, Harvard, Brown, Columbia, and abroad. I've been so fortunate to teach in um, China, Oman, Lebanon. So I like um, to kind of be a professor in a global context. And yes, um, I've spent the past about two decades um, in relation to this book, traveling the Silk Road from kind of Indonesia to Mali and many places in between. Um, and so I, was, I took about two decades to visit all these places and in particular to visit Sufi uh, masters, or we could say like mystic masters um, uh, in, in, uh, in the religion of Islam and to meet with them in, in cities, in the middle of the desert, in Sudan, um, in, in, you know, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Afghanistan, um, all these countries and always uh, so welcomed with such incredible and humbling hospitality. And so I went to them um, to ask kind of the big questions of life um, in in how to be a person and um, how to survive in this world and uh, ethical questions about how to relate to others um, and how to contemplate my own death uh, and the death of, of loved ones and how to live with that awareness of death um, and with that awareness, how how to live. Um, and I they shared so generously with me um, and I, that was really my, I say my true education. I went, um, you know, I have four degrees from Brown, one from Columbia, and then did my postdoc at Harvard. But I feel that my real education was in, uh, as how to be a human being is the most important education. And um, I'm so grateful to all these teachers um, who shared with me 
um, their own personal experience. And, and as if you read the book also, um, kind of gave some counseling, um, in, in soul counseling, psychological counseling and, um, emotional, um, guidance in how to, uh, be a person and, um, how to keep trying to perfect oneself as a human being in this world full of challenges. Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. And I feel like just that introduction you just gave kind of gives a sneak peek of the richness that is in the book. So I'm really grateful that you shared not only your educational experience, but also this two decade long journey that you've been on encountering other folks and learning how to be as a human. I just think that that is a great introduction for this book. Um, My first question for you, uh, and I feel like you kind of touch on this generally, but I'm wondering, are there any specific moments that led to your decision to write this book, The Gift of Rumi? Um, Great question. Um, So I, I had been drawn to Rumi's poetry. Um, very young. My mother at one point was a comparative religions major. So her bookshelves were, she had the Quran, she had the Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, Bible, all these different religious traditions. So I could, you know, read, I read the Quran already in high school um, and then was drawn to Rumi's poetry in college, especially. Um, And I had been studying, I studied Arabic for five years at Brown and I just got interested in Rumi's poetry and wanted and and wanted to read it in the original. So I started taking Persian. And then I started to see kind of in learning Persian at Brown and then at Harvard and then in Tajikistan with the American Institute of Iranian Studies, which was an incredible uh, experience, um, that the translations weren't like necessarily what I was reading in the Persian. So I just thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. And how did that happen? And kind of looking into that and wanting to kind of um, kind of give readers a kind of uh, a word for word translation of Rumi's poetry. Um, and so that I just felt there was kind of a need for that. And people have articulated over, I'd say about the past five years on, on social media, a kind of a, a desire for that. Um, and I thought, well, I, I, that's something I wish I could read. So they say, you know, if, if you don't find the book you want to read, write it. So it's one of those situations. And then I had this incredible, unique opportunity where I was invited to do a 40-day retreat uh, in Istanbul, a spiritual retreat to learn how to whirl like a dervish. And this was with a whirling dervish master and his um, students, his um like Sufi disciples, and to just not leave that 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 dwelling for forty days, and to just really dive into dervish life. So whirling, but whirling is just one aspect of um, dervish community, and this is the Sufi order, the Mevlevi Sufi order, that is dedicated to uh, Rumi and is coming from and his um, life, his tradition, and. His, it's his legacy, really. So I got to learn how to, as in the book you people will read, try to learn how to play the nay, the reed flute, unsuccessfully. Mm-hmm. Um, spoiler alert! And um, how to whirl. <laughs> and and in doing this, um, I just thought, you know, you know, wow, like this is incredible. And um, I, I would like to share kind of the essence of Rumi's um, Sufi poetry and his historical context and cultural context and how his legacy is embodied and transmitted today. So people can see this is not just, you know, 13th century poetry. This is lived, embodied 
um, and treasured by um, Muslim practitioners around the world, just absolutely treasured. Um, and in my introduction, I say how in the musical traditions of Central Asia and in India and Pakistan, uh, the lyrics come from Rumi's Sufi poetry of many of these traditional musical forms. So um, the, the sheikh that I did this retreat with said to me, you know, you will kind of, you will write a book and it will help explain Rumi to, to Westerners or Western readers. And I thought, I will, you know, like, really? <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, sure. And, and that was like the least of my concerns then. And I just, I didn't even think that would be a possibility, but he kind of planted the seed. And then I, I felt the responsibility. And so I kind of felt this was an act of service to kind of give back what I had been given so much by him and his community and all the other shakes on the road that um, this would be some small way of kind of giving back and sharing it and passing it forward. Oh my gosh, yes. And also what what an incredible opportunity to have those 40 days. And I'm just saying um, for those of our listeners who might not have a real deep cultural understanding of the whirling dervish and the dervish community, can you just give us a high level explanation of what that's like, maybe what makes that unique? Sure, great question. So kind of the foundation of that dervish education is um, mindfulness in the sense of kind of etiquette and manners where every, you know, you're kind of training so that you're, you're aware every moment and not just aware, but trying to give love, to be love, to breathe love. So you have to be aware, number one, but also it's awareness in love, with love, and for love. And so that takes training and that takes um, guidance. So um, the sheikh is in the role to, to kind of always, well, just their presence alone makes you kind of awake and aware. Um, and so I say in the book, you know, even the way people place their shoes at the door should be done with awareness and love and care. That every action should be done with love and care. Every breath um, and every glance with love. Uh, so this takes practice. And it was great because it was like a dervish laboratory where we could all practice, number one, trying to just strip away the ego, strip away our worldly preoccupations and our competition, maybe like our desire for you know, competition or, or world or consumption, all these things just strip down to kind of like a more natural state of being in community and in love and, um, and practice together, um, trying to be better human beings with one another. Um, and so the edit, that's kind of the basis is that etiquette, um, and, and manners. And so that even includes like little bowing before you enter the room, permission to enter the room, but it, it's great because it really makes you kind of aware of, of yourself and, and of the other, um, which is important. Mm-hmm. So oh, the, yeah. yeah. So the whirling dervish education, yes, it's about very particular how to whirl and the whole ceremony is very coded. Every gesture is coded with meaning. You have to learn that meaning. You have to practice that meaning. And I go into that a bit in the book. Um, but, um, the, you know, the foundation is really etiquette manners and um, relating to each other um, with love and compassion and service. So that laboratory gave us an opportunity to practice serving one another with the idea that the best way to kind of strip down the ego 
is through serving others. And that was really an incredible opportunity in education to practice constantly. Everybody is like trying to serve one another. You know, Um, everybody has a role. Somebody's the tea person. Somebody's the like clean up the plates person. Everybody has their role. And, um, and those roles can shift. um, But what a great opportunity to be, um, of service. I think in one of the lines I translated from Rumi, he says, you know, to, you, you know, the goal is to kind of find the sultanate hidden in servitude. Um, and so I just, I just love that. Um, it's, it's so strong in his, in his poetry as well. The idea of being of service to people uh, and then kind of the, the humbling of self in the presence of kind of the divine. Mm. Oh, that's powerful. Thank you so much for, for that explanation. Um, and it seems like you really take time. I just want to say this for the listeners that you really do take time to unpack so much in the book, not just culturally, but I think historically as well. And I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about um, the significance of bringing in particularly Rumi's history, like what his context was and what his journey and his life would have been like? Oh, thank you. That's a, that's um. Yeah, thank you for that. I think um, I felt that was important because, you know, we have these, oh, Rumi's been the best-selling poet in America and English for this many years, and everybody talks about that. And we all have an idea of this, this quote, Rumi, who's um, we talk about, but then do readers really know who we're talking about, right? So mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of fill in those blanks um, and give a, hopefully, a kind of more holistic, three-dimensional picture of of who this incredible uh, Muslim preacher, jurist, poet, mystic was, um, and explain the complexities of his life and the time that he lived in, which was not a time of peace, which was a time of incredible um, kind of violence. You had the Mongol invasions. You also had a lot of uh, local power struggles in Central Asia. He and his family um, traveled from the region of Tajikistan and Afghanistan across Central Asia, all the way to Anatolia and modern day Turkey. Uh, He's buried in Konya, where every December 17th, I highly recommend to people listening, people gather in his um, memory to celebrate um, the anniversary of his death. It's an incredible place um, to be on December 17th. And so, it's incredible because it's a time of everything being so uprooted, uncertain, major fear. Nobody kind of, you know, it was like the world was kind of ending with these Mongol invasions in people's minds. And within that horrifying landscape of violence and uncertainty, he creates and writes these ecstatic verses that, that so many of us love and treasure. So I think that's important because I think when we kind of just inherit the kind of hippie dippy roomy thing is like, Oh yay, peace and love, you know, but it's a, it's, it's an incredible uh, example of the human spirit that in the face of all of that, still turning to love, turning to ecstasy, turning towards to communion and to kind of a universal humanity, you know, even though you're seeing the worst of humanity, saying, wait, you know, we are, we are better than this and we can be. And let's also kind of rise above this level of, of um, 
treachery, you know, and embrace something so much more nourishing and beautiful. So I think that's really kind of why I wanted to include the history and also his own kind of, you know, as somebody kind of in a sense of refugee, a migrant moving, that's also resonates with kind of our world today. And people who've read it have kind of said that um, they appreciate that contextualization because of kind of the uh, what's happening today in the world with migrations. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of why I gave that history. And then also I felt it was important to, to point out his um, role as a Muslim preacher. And I included a lot of poems that are preachy for that reason, you know, that it's, yes, it's love, 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 right? But it's also um, holding the reader to an ethical and moral standard and, and pushing the reader to be a better person. And I, to, to include those verses, I have to explain where that's coming from, right? Um so, and then also as a jurist, it's fun. He has a lot of verses about um, Islamic law and he had a certain kind of contentious relationship with jurists who were kind of all very much with, you know, kind of obsessed with the letter of the law. And he says, you know, our judge cares only about is, is the judge of love and plays with that. Um, so I liked, um, I wanted to include that history too. Yeah, yeah. I love that because it gave such a unique, context to read Rumi through rather than, you know, what you were saying, like just, you know, here's this love and let's talk about love. But this is like a resilient, fierce, overcoming type of love that, you know, even in the book, you say um, that Rumi wasn't interested in monasticism. And in this day and age that he was living in, it would have been really easy to be a spiritual leader and to just lock yourself away because humanity is out of control. But you say um, that one should not cut themselves off from the world because without the vices and tests and troubles of the world, we would not develop spiritually. And I just feel like that resonated so deep and true. And it, you know, we wouldn't have got that same understanding of Rumi if we didn't have that spiritual context. And I would love if you could, even just share a little bit more about this, like this coming back into the world, even though it's gnarly and it's chaos. Like when we are pursuing spiritual integrity to remember that we can't just shut ourselves out. We have to engage. Mm, Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. I'm so, I love that you picked up on that because it's something that was not just something that like we find in his poetry, but was a big kind of philosophical question of 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 the day and, and several centuries before him as well, because in certain places, um, like in Iraq, um, mystics in the Islamic tradition were encountering Christians and also um, monastics and looking at that. And there's a, I'm not going to get too kind of academic about this, but um, you know, I, there's that one verse I put in the thing where he says, you know, don't go castrate yourself and become a monk, you know. Um, and and so this was kind of a this this was a dialogue of of do you remove yourself from the world? If we can if, we're, if you're going to look at the world and say, oh, wow, this is um, this is problematic. Right. Um, do you engage with it? How do you engage with it or do you remove yourself? So kind of. It, it in it, his point and, and kind of the idea is to be in the world but not of the world, right? So one of the issues was there were dervishes um, before Rumi's time who were going off into the desert and kind of shunning marriage, and that is not kind of compatible with the Islamic 
uh, tradition. And, and then you do need, you need children and you need communities. And so people started to kind of critique that impulse to, to, to kind of, to leave, you know, and to kind of opt out. So uh, the kind of compromises <laughs> kind of be in the world, but not of the world. So you're in it, but not attached to it. Um, but like you said, also it's like kind of grist for the mill of, well, all of these challenges that we encounter in the world, um, are kind of an opportunity to practice those things of perhaps not being attached. Right. Um, and, um, yeah. And, and many other kind of spiritual facets that in the ways that you can kind of approach the world, um, with, an intention to kind of to use it to better oneself and to better and to help other people. Right. So when we look at the world and say, Oh, I want to test out. Well, that's not, that's about the self, right. That's all about me, 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 me. Um, instead of looking at the world and, and serving others um, and, and seeing the need to serve others, you know, many Sufi um, lodges had kind of what we would call kind of like a, a I don't want to call it hospice, but you know, like a place for like a, like a hostel kind of people, travelers to come through and also for poor people to come, sick people to come, um, constant serving. So that's also kind of dervish culture, um, at that time is, um, and, and for many centuries later is serving, serving those in need. And that becomes a reason to be in the world, um, is to serve others. And, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a question that remains for pretty much everybody I know in my life, right? Is, <laughs> yes. Um, everybody wants to now be in their little caves and say, oh, this is too much, but this is not, in a way it's nothing new, right? This is a, this is what it means to be a human being. Um, it's how do we engage in this world, relate to one another? Um, and do we opt out because it's just too much or whatever? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And I love that we're, you know, Rumi was asking these questions and having these conversations so long ago, and we're still grappling with what that looks like and what that means for us. And I just think that's so powerful. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. But I think what's so amazing is poems and what I tried to include were verses where he's he's aiming for not just the stars, but beyond the stars. And it's kind of like, why are you making your preoccupation this world, right? Instead of the divine realm. And so that's where the kind of whirling practice comes in is like, you, it's kind of a metaphor of you keep turning, keep turning, keep turning towards the divine, keep turning towards beauty, keep turning towards ecstasy and bewilderment and turn towards not knowing. And so that's the refuge, the refuge um, it, and, and kind of the the work in a way is to just keep turning and keeping one's consciousness and sights, um, spiritual kind of sights on that on love, right? And so that's for him. Everything else falls away. If your sights are on love, then whatever all these are preoccupations with the world, which are still worldly preoccupations, fall away. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a great verse I put in there that he wrote where he says, you know, if, if my eyes have ever like looked upon anything else, but love, you know, on the day of kind of judgment, like keep kind of paradise for me, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, like don't take one moment in life to look at anything except love and see, you know, so I just, I think that in many ways is, um, a phenomenal fix and um guidance is uh and how to get through the muck is why are you looking at the muck right 
we have all these other um, beautiful ways of being and relating and uh, just being in love. And that's, um, that's the refuge. Yeah. And that's timeless, you know? Mm-hmm. True. I love yeah. um, okay. You brought this up. So I'm going to go here. Uh, the whirling dervish, like Rumi and his experience with that. But I'm also curious, I don't want you to give too much away because I want people to go and buy your book and support you and read about it. But I also am curious, can you give us just a little sneak peek into your own whirling dervish experience? Mm, okay, sure. Um, so um, I have a, uh, a dance background. So, you know, I kind of started off with like, oh, how hard can it really be? Well, it turns out it is <laughs> right. very hard. Um, <laughs> yes. And the teacher wanted to train me very slowly, which is the traditional way. And that's what I loved because for better and worse, I'm very much a purist in, um, in traditions that I study is I, I kind of want it to be you know, and so I was very fortunate that I found a sheikh who teaches in the traditional way. You know, this is going back centuries. Um, this is very unusual. I mean, that's very hard to find. So I was very fortunate just because that's kind of my orientation is kind of purist. So I'm like, okay. And, you know, he, he made a, a wooden board and he stuck a stick. Um, like there's a little kind of, it's not a nail because that sounds like it'll hurt a lot, but a little knob, let's say, in the middle and you stick your first two toes, kind of put that knob between those. And it's just very slow for the first, when he starts training people. And I'm a little impatient. So I am a purist, but I'm impatient. So I'm like, okay, I got it. I got this step, you know. But so much of what he was teaching me was in the process of learning, which was about patience, you know. So there's all these kind of lessons happening on multiple levels. Um, and we each would take our turn on the board, you know, and eventually then I advanced and then I got to do it without the board. And then I, to my surprise, got given the kind of the gown to, you know, the beautiful white gown. And I meant to say with your question before about the world is that all that, um, the, the cloak, these mean things. So the white represents kind of the funeral shroud and then the black cloak over that is the world and kind of all those, everything that comes with the world. And so when the ceremony begins, you take off that black cloak because you are taking off the world to kind of merge and feel and uh, love. And, but at the end, this goes back to your question, you know, we put back on the black cloak. So you you don't get to stay in that ecstatic state. You don't get to stay in those kind of celestial transcendent realms. You must come back down to earth but the idea is now you have to go be a servant and bring that love to other people. So the, the whirling dervish ceremony itself that you're asking about really mirrors that kind of what we just talked about in that last question of you, you, yes, you can ascend, transcend and taste that ecstasy of love, but then come back down and then give that to other people. So it was great to kind of learn that in an embodied practice in community and have the support of my dervish brothers who were so supportive and wonderful. And then I had to do my final exam, which was a shock, to, like surprise to me of turning <laughs> 1001 times when they yes. counted. And um, that was um, really fun because I just, I mean, I mean, fun when it was over. Um, right, and, right. But um, it was a great experience. And I just loved feeling their love and support as I tried to wobble a thousand and one times um and not lose my lunch um there's tricks that they 
it takes practice. Yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. What an awesome opportunity. And one thing that I love about the book is that it is such an embodied experience, like the faith journey in this way is very embodied. It's not apart from the body, just like it's not apart from the world. It's very embodied. And I think that's so powerful. Okay. I think I have time to sneak in a couple of last questions. So I just want to think through, um, there was one chapter. Oh, okay. The chapter on self-blame. I was so curious. It was so intriguing to me, especially as a Westerner, an American Westerner particularly, where we value so much of the ego and the appearance. And I'm just curious, can you talk to us about the path of self-blame? I will. And, you know, it's interesting. Usually when I speak about um, Sufism and Sufi history, I don't talk about it just because, like you said, it's kind of so kind of foreign to our our uh, construction of subjectivity and, and ways of being in the world. But as I was translating Rumi and reading so much in Persian and how so much of that kind of path, which I'll explain in a minute, comes up, I just thought, okay, I need to include this. And also it was kind of a, you can see it in the behavior of his teacher, Shams of Tabriz. So I thought, well, this is a big part of him and I shouldn't leave it out just because maybe it's a little strange to, um, to a Western reader. So uh, the, I, so one way we can work on our ego um, and in the sense of, um, or let's say our ego attachments and our idea of self and separateness from other people, right. Uh, is service. But another way is to, and, and this is not for everybody. Um, it would be kind of if somebody is at a certain, let's say, kind of level of understanding, um, because it could be misunderstood and abused, uh, would be to bring blame on the self uh, to kind of intentionally humble oneself. So let's just give an example of, you know, if you know, one should not drink in Islam. So what if one carries through the street, um, and I'm talking about this as a specific example in Rumi's day, um, you know, a, a container of alcohol, not drinking from it, but oh, people then might talk, right? And and then you kind of intentionally maybe bring some ruin upon your reputation to kind of break your attachment to reputation. Um, and this is not really practiced today. I do know maybe some who have pra practiced it in little ways um, to just kind of bring some little blame on themselves to humble themselves. Not really practiced today, but it was a bigger part of Sufi practice um, then. And um, I think, I think it's liberate. I, I hope maybe you can tell me as a reader, but kind of liberating to even read about as a possibility, right? Because we're so kind of fixed to our notions of ego and self and reputation. I don't know. What was it like for you to read that or... Yeah, I think exactly what you said, because it is such a foreign thing, just to even go there in my mind was really interesting because, you know, every part of our culture here, at least, you know, I'm in outside of Philadelphia and work culture, like parent culture, all of it is about like what is reflected back at you as who you are and what you can do, what you what you produce, how much you work, you know, and just to have the permission to let go of that. That's more what I took as a reader was to look at it through the lens of like, this is permission that there is a better way and you don't need to hold so tightly to that, to that ego. Right. And is, you know, is it better? Or is it going to also just make you happier? Right. Uh, and more at peace. So like, you know, in the kind of the great resignation, everybody quitting their jobs, I have friends who have quit and they quit 
And they're really, they're like, I'm going to quit. And then they quit. And then they're like, so they'll be out with friends or, or maybe they'll meet a friend of a friend and they're like, oh, so what do you do? And then even though they think they no longer care about reputation, they're like, oh my gosh, like, oh, well, I was working at the, and they can see they're still so attached, even though they took this great big leap to say like, you know what, I'm going to quit and just like be for a little bit. And, and, but then they run up against the ego and like, how is that, how am I framed to people? And like, what are they going to think of me? And so it's very difficult for, even when I think somebody takes that leap, it's still, it's, it's very hard, you know? Yes. But then they're very happy and then they're much happier and they're much more at peace, Uh, but it takes, there's a transition. (laughs) Yeah. It's a shock at first. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. If you could leave us with one final thought now that your book is out in the wild and we are loving it and the readers are going to love it, what would it be? You're sweet. Thank you. Uh, What's my final thought? What what was my Mm -hmm. thought supposed to be about? Um, If if you know someone's going to pick up your book today, like what would you, what would your final thought as the author be? Oh, um, love, just love all the way. L O V E. That's, that's all there is. That's, um, that's, that's the aim. That's, um, the, the purpose. Um, and that's the kind of the everything, um, I have nothing to say other than just love. I would hope, uh, they would hopefully feel and take away that, um, and and how different, how radically different, different our life can be, if and when we make love the centerpiece of not just of our life but of our very being and of um of every breath, um, and our understanding of the nature of reality as love and um and and, and I would venture perhaps or if not perhaps but certainly kind of the purpose of our our whole being here in our existence. Mm. Oh, that's good. Thank you, Dr. Odell. Okay. I could probably talk to you for a few more hours, but I feel like we've taken a lot of your time. Um, before I let you go, will you tell us what, um, what are some projects you're working on now? Like what's next? Thank you so much. Um, so I am working on a memoir. Um, I just, I, I'm, I was living, um, in China during the pandemic, and also got to spend winter time and summer in Tibet. Um, and so I am working on, and I'm, I'm very happy with it so far, um, a memoir about um, my time in China and Tibet during the pandemic, but it's not really even about the pandemic, but it gives a real kind of unique behind the scenes um, look into uh, kind of realities on the ground in China and uh, and in Tibet, and and an extraordinary cast of characters who they're just un- incredible people. So people who have read it or have heard me tell the whole story, they're like, "Oh my god, this is a movie!" Just jump to the screenplay. Just jump to the screenplay. So I will also yeah. I'll also hope to write a screenplay. Um, and then I'm in Los Angeles and I'm working on um a screenplay about a chapter of American history that um, I cannot wait to share. Uh, it's been amazing to dive into American history and see kind of the roots of things going on today in this particular chapter of American history. So I'm kind of focused on that. And then I have a play reading coming up um, about a famous modern uh, activist in China um, that I I can't wait to share. So I have a play, a screenplay and a book. Um, So I'm busy writing and, and so happy to be just having the time to kind of write all these tales. 
Wow. Oh my gosh. Those sound like such great projects. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show tonight and we really enjoyed interviewing you and I can't wait to continue to support your work. So thank you so oh, much for tonight. You. Thank, you, thank you so much for having me. This has been so wonderful and I, I'm, I'm so touched that you read the book and, um, and you're sharing it with your listeners. Thanks so much. Yes, of course.